a lot of real estate investors that maybe are have one eye wandering towards the idea of becoming a social media influencer. Their biggest concern is cost and time. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Welcome back to another episode of Where Should I Invest? I am Sarah Larby. I am excited for today's podcast episode with none other than Matt McKeever. You guys probably know him from his popular YouTube show, YouTube channel. I was actually on his show and it was super fun. Matt is absolutely a successful real estate investor and entrepreneur doing it, still investing and also is proof that you can do this and retire early. He uh, He's big on that whole FIRE movement, financial independence retire early and uh, a huge inspiration to many. And uh, I will say if you have not checked out his YouTube show, definitely type in Matt McKeever in YouTube and uh, you'll see he's got so much amazing content. And that's actually what the podcast today is about. It is uh, how to brand yourself, how to use social media, and especially in times like this where things are becoming more and more virtual. Who knows really what the new normal will be like I don't know if there's going to be a second wave. I mean, they're definitely saying that there's something else coming, but it is important to really work on branding and social media presence or anything in order to keep your business afloat. So if you're looking at starting a podcast or or starting a YouTube show just to get some content out there, I'll tell you, starting the podcast is probably one of the best things that I've done in my life. Not only is it super fun, I get to interview tons of really successful, awesome people, and I get to learn a lot as as I interview everybody. But I'll tell you, if you're looking for a way to brand yourself that's different than your typical person that you're going to see handing out cards, I'll tell you the, the podcast piece is a great way. It's a great way to attract you know, different types of people, depending on what you're looking for. I mean, I, I definitely wasn't doing it for this. I originally just wanted to do a podcast just to do a podcast, but I, t- I can tell you it opened up many doors along the way. And, you know, it, it's definitely worth the time and the effort. And for you guys, for you guys to be able to learn, it's awesome how many emails I get. Like for even somebody in Jamaica emailed me and said how much his that podcast has helped him buy four properties. And I love hearing those stories because that essentially, you know, is why... I want to do it originally and it's why I'm still continuing and of course it brings in you know many other open doors but ultimately it's to be able to provide Canadian content Canadian education and you know even though he was investing in in Jamaica that's quite ironic but you know there's a lot of emails and, and messages I get from Canadians that are buying their first second third investment property and creating that freedom for themselves so that's super awesome. Other than that, I've been living at the cottage for a while. I think it's been since March, (laughs) minus a couple days here and there just to go back and check on the property. But I will say having a cottage has been also probably the second best thing that I've done recently in terms of of purchasing um, assets because it's one of those things like who knows what will happen again. But the, the fact that I can be outside and take the boat out or fish or getting, you know, a little bit out of the house and doing things 
COVID's been a, a great testament to why I need a cottage and why maybe maybe some of you guys might want to look and reconsider that. And I'll tell you the the funny thing is, so I know we had a ban on short-term rentals because Ford didn't want anybody, you know, spreading the virus, et cetera. Now it's been lifted. But as soon as it was lifted, my cottage, and maybe even a little bit before that, there's tons of inquiries, but it's actually rented. So I'm going to be leaving mid-July, but literally every time, every other time that I'm not there, it's booked every day until mid-September and even now October. <laughs> Somebody booked it already for Thanksgiving. So because nobody can travel and uh, they're looking at getting away from maybe their condos or their apartments or doing something different for the summer where they can still enjoy themselves regardless. And uh, cottage rentals are, are the, the thing to do, I guess, this year. But I'll tell you, last year and the year before, even when there was no COVID, it was booked pretty solid in the summer too. And we get about 5.50 a night, high season. So that's like July and August, a little bit less, ob- obviously. May and June and, and September is less. And so it's off season. But I'll tell you that you rent it out for the summer. You're pretty much enjoying a free cottage the rest of the time. So it's fun. I love it. If you guys have any cottage questions, feel free to reach out. So with that said, anyways, Matt McKeever, awesome guy, super successful investor, and also created this amazing brand and really knows how to market himself. So if you guys are interested in that, let me know what your thoughts are. Feel free also to rate, leave a rating for the podcast. It's awesome when you guys do that. I love it. And it's really appreciated. So on to the show. Welcome back, guys. I am Sarah Larby, and this is Where Should I Invest? I've got a returning guest. You may know him from his very popular YouTube show, Matt McKeever, welcome to the show. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Super excited to have you. As we are doing this, we are still in social isolation and, uh, you know, plugging away. But I wanted to bring you on just so we can discuss our, our opinions, our thoughts on, you know, what is happening in the current real estate investing market, what's happening in the economy, and just everything around that. And again, you know, I want to preface this as saying this is uncensored. We are sharing our opinions. If you agree or not, that's great. Give us your your own uh, opinions. We're happy to listen to that, but uh, we're going to share ours today. So, all right. Awesome. For those people, maybe the rare people that don't know you, <laughs> can you give us a, a little bit of an overview on uh, what you do in terms of real estate? Absolutely. So I'm a real estate investor here in London, Ontario in Canada. Started investing in real estate when I was 25. I'm 35 now. Uh, I've slowly built up my way to over 100 units here in London, Ontario. And then otherwise created a lot of social media content around real estate investing. And I kind of preach to a lot of real estate investors the importance of social media and really leaning into it. Although obviously, Sarah, you're no stranger to that either. Absolutely. I was, I had so much fun. We were filming some of the uh, episodes in Brantford. So we walked through with you and your crew, some of the burrs that I've done. And uh, I, I must say that you guys do such a good job of like piecing it all together and coming up with, you know, some, some interesting stories uh, to go along with it too. So how long have you been doing that? The, the- uh- So it'll be four years in September. So four years of YouTube videos. We've now got over 650 videos out on YouTube and we're doing a video a day now in 2020. So we're at like, I don't even know, 120 plus videos at this point already this year. So we're going hard. Amazing. How did you get into that part? Uh, For me, it was really just, I'd quit the rat race. I was working as a CPA, a chartered accountant and around 31 in 2016, I, I left that career. 
And, you know, at the age 31, I found out there wasn't a lot of my peers that were in similar positions where they were able to kind of hang out during the day or, you know, plan to take over the world or whatever you want to call what I do. And I'd start writing these really long emails to my best friends, trying to explain to them how they could get into real estate investing. And if they followed a similar path or pattern to what I did, that they'd be able to quit the rat race in like five years or less just by kind of following, you know, the 1% rule, burning real estate, a lot of the stuff you do as well, Sarah. And they, those emails were really long, like 5,000 words plus long. So I'm sure you can imagine that not a single person read them and responded to them. And thankfully, at the time, I happened to be reading a book, and that book said, talk to your audience the language they wish to be spoken in. And it immediately clicked for me that real estate is such like a visual tactile thing. The reason we like real estate over paper assets is because we have this sense of control. We can feel it, touch it, we can sleep in it. And it immediately just clicked for me that YouTube would be a much better medium because it's visual and audio rather than written in order to really document and explain why I thought real estate investing was such a good idea. Very cool. Now, did you used to do a podcast in the, in the past, like years ago? Yeah. So what myself and <laughs> yeah, myself and Kellen, uh, it still is kind of a podcast. We just don't release episodes too often. So I think we did have you on it once, Sarah. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess YouTube's kind of my main focus. So that's kind of, I really believe in this idea of at least picking one or two social media channels and just crushing it on that, like dominating that that niche and then having a presence on the others, but really funneling towards that. So for me, YouTube is the platform or the medium that I want to crush. And then all the other social media, we still try hard and like podcasting is honestly, it's a weak spot in my like social media armor that I know I need to step up my game there. But right now I just have a limiting belief that I don't have enough time, but I just need to crush that and start one. And I mean, a lot of people are probably saying you've, you've done the right choice because you've got probably the most popular YouTube channel when it comes to real estate investing, definitely for Canada and probably, you know, even just globally. How many subscribers do you have right now? Yeah, I appreciate that. We actually will be hitting 59,000 subscribers on YouTube today. So that's a fun milestone. And yeah, we really do believe that we've got Canada's best real estate investing YouTube channel out there really just trying to document not even just my story, but a lot of other investors stories. Because for me, I guess one of my biggest struggles when I originally wanted to get into real estate investing was this idea that whenever I found information, it was either from Canadians, but it was like decades old. So it was like books that were written in the 80s, 80s and 90s, or it was current and relevant, but it was for Americans. So like bigger pockets. Mm -hmm. I kind of found like as a Canadian, it felt like we were in this no man's land between like knowing it was possible because people had done it and succeeded in the 80s and 90s, but also not really knowing how it worked in the 21st century for Canadians. So uh, that's really been my goal is to just document as many different Canadian real estate investors journeys as possible on my YouTube channel, because some people might look at Matt McKeever and be like, man, that guy had it made. It was easy for him, you know, white Canadian single dude, like he really has no excuses to not crush it. And yeah, I'll take that. So that's why I'm trying to document so many other people so that they can see like, oh no, like this father of four has done it or this single mother's done it or this married couple is crushing it. And really just trying to show that no matter where you are on the spectrum of humanity, there's someone out there that looks like you that is crushing it in real estate.
Absolutely. I find it interesting. If you don't mind, I have a few more questions about that. You know, yeah. it was probably a, a slow start, right? So when did you say, wow, my channel has actually made it? Like walk us through maybe some of that process. What are some of the, the things that you did to get it from absolutely no channel to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Social media and YouTube in particular is a fickle mistress in my opinion. So it's one of those things where you really have to commit to it. So for me, I really understood that this was part of a bigger picture. I believe that attention is one of the most undervalued assets out there. And I believe your personal brand and your reputation, if you invest in it correctly, that's the most valuable asset you can have because it's something that doesn't disappear with bankruptcy. It's something that doesn't disappear with, you know, it takes a lot to really tear down someone that's established themselves in the pop culture or kind of just in the, in the social fabric of society. So for me, I really saw the long-term value in this. So it wasn't a matter of like, I'm going to make 10 videos and I hope one goes viral or I'm going to make a hundred videos. It was just like, I'm going to do this and I'm doing this forever. So if you guys can have that level of crazy, that will definitely help. But for the people that maybe don't have as strong of beliefs in personal brands or social media, I think the key is just consistency. So pick, pick a formula that works for you. Maybe that's every Monday release a video. But once you set that, that just becomes the new normal for you. And it becomes one of the most important things in your weekly, just your weekly habit habits or your weekly rhythm. So once you commit to say making that video a day, then focus on just providing as much value upfront as possible. Way too often people have this dream of I'm going to start a YouTube channel in 30 days. I'm going to go viral and then I'll start a personal clothing brand and then I'll get this sponsorship, man, especially in the niche we're in with real estate investing, you need to be in this for the long haul. So for myself, starting in September 2016, it, it really depends on your definition of success. I always had a goal of getting to 500 subscribers, which seems very small now in hindsight, but like felt monumental. I was like 500 strangers are going to click the subscribe button because they enjoy my YouTube channel so much. And what a lot of people don't realize is it actually unlike a lot of other social media platforms, getting a subscriber on YouTube is a lot more difficult than almost any other platform. So Instagram, like when people are viewing your IG profile, they're already logged in. So it's so easy to click uh, follow. When you're on YouTube, oftentimes people don't, aren't signed into their Gmail or their YouTube account. So like there's an extra step added into even just becoming a subscriber. So for example, my YouTube channel will have had three or 4 million views on the YouTube channel, but we've only garnered 60,000 subscribers. So there really is a, a big difference there. But getting back to more practical tips, I think the key is don't get romantic with your content either. Consistency and quantity over quality at the start is really critical. And just like planting your flag. And bonus points, in my opinion, if you can have something that stands out. So you need a bit of a polarizing message. And I think it's something a lot of us Canadians struggle with is being polarizing because we're so even keel middle of the road. But the problem is even keel middle of the road, average advice, there's so much other content out there competing with it that separating your signal from all the other noise is really difficult. So if you can find a way to just step a little bit outside of normal with your content, you'll be able to build and garner a stronger core audience. And I'm a huge believer. There's a essay out there called thousand true fans. And for anyone looking to become a content creator, you absolutely need to read this essay. It's really quick read, maybe a few thousand words, but the essence of it is it doesn't take a huge following to be able to make a living off of content creation. 
So if you have a thousand true fans and those thousand true fans are willing to support you, say monetarily $50 a year, all of a sudden that's $50,000 a year in gross revenue. Now, if you had that in an information product, it doesn't need to be a lot um, or your cost doesn't need to be a lot of uh, the margin there. So the vast majority of it can actually be profit. And you can, you can eke out a living on social media or as a content creator in a much easier manner than I think the average person assumes, but it all starts with providing value and having just enough of a polarizing message. So for myself, my polarizing message was like, you know, frugality, house hacking, you know, living outside of society's normals. Again, none of that's like really polarizing, but it's just enough because like saving 10% and retiring at 55, it's not polarizing enough. Everyone knows that advice. So no one's going to follow you on that journey. Absolutely. I mean, that's really interesting. And, and you took my question where I was going to say that, you know, what is it that the message that you're coming up with that's polarizing? And sometimes I, I enjoy reading on your Instagram, the haters or even on YouTube. I mean, it's, it's definitely quite interesting. And I think you do something interesting with that content Yeah. through, you know, the strategy behind that. Yeah. So originally, like, I, again, it's surprising to me the sort of emotional reaction I can garner by just creating free content on the internet. But some people get really hot and bothered about it. And they, they're more than happy to share their frustrations with me. And originally, I never understood the value in leaving a hateful comment or responding to it as a content creator for probably the first year or two, I just ignored it. Recently, though, I've started sharing it and just kind of like, making jokes or jabs at the hater and sharing it on my Instagram and TikTok and things of that nature. And we found those to sometimes be the most popular posts. People really resonate when I start chirping back my haters. I think it, it shows a little bit of personality. And again, it's just a little bit more polarizing. And because of that, it stands out compared to all the other content creators in Canada, in my opinion. But there was a book that I read called Social Animals. And in there, it talked about why gossip is a thing so for example like if if we're talking about how becky's a slut or about how jim's a player or whatever sort of thing we're talking about i used to think that that was just a waste of like i was i just thought it was people being stupid and just talking for the sake of talking but in this book it really broke down for me that this is people trying to confirm their social norms so that like when we're talking about becky being a slut or jim being a player we're not actually like talking about them. We're trying to identify, hey, these are my social norms and my social mores. Do you agree and align with these? And I realized that these haters on my YouTube comments section, like they're literally trying to establish the same thing. And I felt it was important that I at least occasionally respond to them and share my perspective because this is also my attempt to social norm or so, like confirm my social mores to other people's right like hey this guy is literally batshit crazy and views the entire world as negative and scarcity oriented and he's saying that you know people can't make money in real estate and so i feel it's important to come back and be like hey man like from my logical rational perspective which is how i try and view everything you know this is why i believe your arguments to be false or invalid and then usually i'll still try and bring some humor into it but for me it, it's multi-purposed so it's great that it really resonates with my audience and they enjoy it. But I also think it's important in the legacy and having an impact spectrum because there are times that people respond, they're like, hey man, you know what? I was actually just having a really shitty day. I'm glad you called me on my bullshit and you kind of caused me to reflect. Now, for every one of those, there's probably 10 people that just doubled down on flaming me. But it, it is meaningful when those individuals, when you, you see that you made an impact or really changed their perspective. 
um, because that's the whole point of content, in my opinion. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. I want to take a quick pause from the podcast to introduce you to some of my amazing contractors. On this week's episode, I wanted to introduce you to Rob and Joel from White's Elm Design Build. And Rob and Joel just finished my major renovations on my latest Burlington project. And it was a full renovation and absolutely worth it. They've been super easy to work with. I wanted to give you guys some insights on some of the services that they offer their clients and they focus on Oakville to Hamilton and beyond, but they're really great. Like if you guys are ever in a property and you want to FaceTime or video call Rob or Joel, they can actually give you some insights on what to look for and also how much we are looking at renovations. Because if you're thinking about doing a flip or a burr project, the rhino part is really important to get right to also figure out how much it's gonna cost and what renos are gonna be needed to get the actual maximum after repair value. So super important. They will gladly do these video calls or conference calls with you guys to give you some of those insights. They're really good at getting back to clients quickly. They can also do physical walkthroughs. If you guys are thinking about purchasing a property or you have it under contract, they can do that with you. They're super professional and uh, they've been very involved in my latest project and uh, really on the ball. So super easy to communicate with. They finished on time, on budget, which is really important as we know. And they've got a whole team of trades. They line them up so that they're as efficient as possible. And they work with a lot of investors, but they also do some of the higher end flip types of projects too. So they work on everything in between. They're fully licensed, insured, WSIB covered. So feel free to reach out to them. They are able to be found at whiteelmdesignbuild.com. That is whiteelmdesignbuild.com. Or you can send them an email, joel, J-O-E-L, at white elmdesignbuild.com or rob at whiteelmdesignbuild.com. Good luck on your next projects. Now back to the show. I think you do a really good job about with it. And it's actually quite entertaining to, to see through all the haters. And I mean, there's the more, I think the more that, that we put ourselves out there, the more there will be haters. And then just the more that you'll have fans as well. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, you know, monetary as well. Like I, I think it's important and I'm sure you agree that we have more than one source of income because you never know what's going to happen. And, and so I don't need to know exactly what you make, but like as, as an average, what are some of the ways that you can monetize, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So again, I'm happy to share all my numbers. So I will in a second, but I just want to lead with the caveat to me, my personal brand, my reputation, my social media brand, for that matter, is really a long-term investment. So I actually spend more money every month than I earn off of it. But there would be a way that I could structure and do a lot of what I do and have it be a break-even business so it doesn't necessarily have to be a financial drain. Because I know a lot of real estate a lot of real estate investors that maybe are have one eye wandering towards the idea of becoming a social media influencer, their biggest concern is cost and time. 
And so what I'm going to lay out now, it's probably going to scare a lot of them away, but this is just my approach, guys. So don't immediately panic just because you hear that Matt's lighting a lot of money on fire every month. So that being said, what it looks like right now for me is my YouTube channel for COVID-19. I was making about $3,000 a month off of YouTube ads. Um, now it's less than $1,000 because I use the word COVID-19 and coronavirus in my title. So like all my shit's demonetized now. But again, for me, it's more important for me to have a voice and a brand than it is for me to make money off of it. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that every person has to take this approach. Secondly, we've got a few different integrated sponsorships. And those probably earn a couple thousand dollars a month in addition to it. We have a few other little miscellaneous things that maybe add on a few more hundred dollar streams like Amazon affiliate links sometimes will pop off and make money there. So as a bundle, I'd say before COVID-19, anywhere from five to $10,000 a month in income is what I was generating based upon my social media platforms. And again, I've never really focused on monetizing it. But we have done like one-off partnerships with like Tarion, the home warranty company. And so that to me was cool because to me, it just brought a certain level of legitimacy. People are like, every time I drop that, people are like, Tarion, oh, that's like a real company. I'm like, yeah, 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 it is a real company. Like they do all the home warranties in Canada or in Ontario for new builds. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of what it looks like on the income side of things. And if anyone's curious, I, I make in essence a penny of view. So every time you guys are watching one of my videos, just think of that as a rounding error in regards to pennies, but I appreciate every one of those rounding <laughs> errors. And on the expense side, I now have four full-time employees that work on my media stuff. So obviously it costs me a lot more than five to $10,000 a month. Any given month, we're probably 16 to $22,000 a month in expenses. So I'm losing, you know, at least $10,000 a month in regards to my social media. Now, that being said, I view this as all long, long game. So the fact that most other Canadian real estate investors and influencers aren't willing to invest as heavily into their brand or their reputation or social media as me, I just view that as an advantage. I'm like, oh man, this is me like, you know, I, I view it almost as like we're going through transition from the, uh, uh, the motion pictures to the talkies. Like we're literally seeing this giant revolution in social media and connection with audiences and stuff. And I know that there's going to come a time when I'm going to decide to flip the monetization switch. I'll make a shit ton of money off of it. It's just right now doesn't feel like the time to me. It still feels like the time to just keep gathering more attention while attention still relatively free and cheap. Sure. I do have my education company, Cashflow Tribe Alpha, and there is a monetization aspect to that. So again, me having a personal brand in this sphere is still even valuable for that education company, but that still feels tangential. And I guess one last thing that I just kind of want to mention on the personal brand that I haven't done yet so far is I think it's really important that everyone listening to this, if you're thinking about starting a personal brand, if you're thinking about getting into social media, I really encourage you to brand yourself and not what you do. So for me, it's Matt McKeever. It's not the Canadian real estate guru guy. And I think that that's important because I don't know where Matt, like Matt McKeever's 35 right now. I don't know where he's going to want to be in 20, 30 years from now, but there's a good chance he maybe doesn't want to be the real estate guy. He maybe has wanted to move on. And the lens which, which I view personal brand and social media through is it, it'd be a lot easier for Matt McKeever to pivot and all of a sudden become the world travel guy and bring a big chunk of his audience along and continue to monetize that audience and relationship and, uh, content development than it would be for Matt to shunt 
the real estate guy and now have to start up a whole new brand as the travel guy. So having Matt McKeever be the brand, I think is really important. And that's why I think it's like important, you know, like Sarah Larby is the brand and it's not just like, you know, whatever the renovation queen or the bird queen, because while that's still smart and intelligent from a branding perspective and the longest of games and the longest of terms, you're probably going to want to pivot multiple times. And I mean, we can look at any influencer as an example of this, but like Will Smith, originally a rapper, right? Like then became an actor, then became this and that and the other. Donald Trump, a businessman, an actor, a TV guy, the president of the United States, you know, Dwayne Johnson, he was a football player, CFL player, then he was like a wrestler, then he was an actor. And then like, he can be whatever he wants now. And same with Chris Rock. And so for me, a lot of these very intelligent, successful personal brands were built upon the person's name or like a brand or identity that was universal rather than being like only the wrestler or only the actor or only the comedian. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I 100% agree with everything that you've said. And I, I do want to second the fact that even though I have a podcast and the podcast is, is fairly successful, it is a wash. It's a break even, right? So what I get in terms of sponsorship I pay the VAs and I pay my branding manager and essentially it balances it out. So, you know, it's, it's more about putting in your deposits now. And then at some mm -hmm. point you may pivot. Right. But I'm not, if I think if you're starting a podcast or you're starting a YouTube channel and you're like, I'm going to make a living off of this and I'm going to retire. It's the stuff that comes after that I think is why I would want to do it, right? So A, obviously educating people that are Canadian in Canadian content, but B, it's just all the connections that you do make with the listeners or for your, um, for mm -hmm. your with the viewers. And then JV opportunities, uh, yeah. you know, opportunities to help somebody buy their first investment property. But I, I don't think that the podcast or the YouTube show is going to make you extremely wealthy. I mean, I'm sure some people can do it, but I, I don't think that that's why, I mean, that's not why I wanted to start the podcast. I'm like, I'm going to get rich doing the podcast, you know, putting the content out there, put your deposits and then at some point things will come around. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really is important that you understand if you're going to like really niche down the way we have done and we've niched down a lot of ways and people don't realize it naturally as Canadians, but like being focused on Canadian shit is a niche in and of itself. And then real estate is another niche. And then like Ontario or Burrs is another niche. So all of a sudden you're adding a lot of niches on. So to really build a, a media empire from all those sub niches is difficult. And to create like a massive business from it, I think is difficult. But what's really interesting and that Sarah touched upon there is the ability to, you know, JV or find partners or just have more attention in general. So one thing that a lot of people overlook when they're looking at me and my personal brand is let's just be like super honest. So it's difficult to get successful people to want to spend time with you. It just straight up is they got a lot of other things competing for their time. So when someone wants to reach out to say like a Casey Wong or like a Sarah Larby or whoever you're looking at as your social media influencer, or the kind of the successful real estate investor, why should they want to spend any time with you? Why, why should, like, how are you going to cut through the noise? And for me, the most powerful thing I can do today is, you know, I'm a successful real estate investor and a successful social media influencer. When I want to talk to a successful real estate investor that's playing at a different level than me. So like, let's, let's just be honest, like maybe they're a decamillionaire or they're pushing on a nine figure 
personal net worth. Really hard for me to stand out on the personal net worth or landlord game. Cause I'm like, Hey, I got a hundred plus tenants, you know, like I got a hundred units and they're like, cool. Like th- my smallest entity doesn't even own that anymore. So it's tough for me or anyone else that wants to really spend time or get on that person's radar. I'll, I'll reach out as the social media influencer to that person. I'll be like, Hey, I've got this YouTube channel, 60,000 subs in the first 24 hours. We usually get over a thousand views on a typical video. Can I interview you or can I break it down for you? They immediately understand I'm, I'm leading with value first, right? And this is how strong relationships are built is you provide value first. So my social media is a way for me to provide value to high value individuals that constantly have people wanting to just leech value from them. I can lead with value, which is really powerful. And on the flip side, it also works with social media influencers. So when I want to reach out to a half a million subscriber based YouTube channel or a million plus YouTube subscribers, I don't reach out as the 60,000 YouTube guy. I reach out as the hundred plus unit real estate investor. And it's, it's those kind of cross angles at which we can come to build relationships with that I think is really exceptional with the value of social media. Because again, Everyone knows that social media is the new platform. It's where advertising and marketing dollars are going. It's where everyone's attention already is. Everyone knows they should be doing more on social media and aren't. And so the moment you can present yourself as an expert or someone with a real platform or a real audience to listen to, all of a sudden you can open up all kinds of interesting doors that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And that to me is where the real value lies in social media is through networking and being able to provide value to new members of your network sooner. Absolutely. You know, and I have a lot of of, um, folks that are trying to get into real estate investing and, you know, maybe they've done one or two properties. And some of the time I just say, why don't you start posting? Because here's the, here's the thing is for me, it was important to build my own portfolio before I start looking at JVs, which I, which I am now. But I will say, I mean, I have people reaching out to me from email, from the podcast, from Instagram, et cetera. If I had a deal tomorrow and I wanted a JV, that's the great part of it is that they trust you because they see you, they, they see you ongoing, right? Whether it's through you as your channel and they start trusting you. And I think mm-hmm. you know, if somebody's going to offer 100000 or $200,000 to do something, would they rather invest it with somebody that they followed for the last couple of years that they know, you know, are here to stay and they care about their brand and their reputation or somebody that they've never heard of before. So I think, you know, somebody that's looking for a potential JV and that has done a couple options, like start putting yourself out there, even if it's a little bit on Facebook, a little bit on, on Instagram, and then you're, you're going to get some questions, some interest from others and you can start building that way. Easiest way to get people interested to, to hold the mortgage and to, to bring the money as well. Absolutely agree. So your hundred properties, I'm guessing a lot of them are, are with JVs. Have they found you from your social media platforms or how did you get those? Yeah, great question. So there certainly has been a lot of opportunities to potentially partner with uh, fans or audience members from social media. I personally haven't really done a lot of that yet to this point. There's a multitude of reasons there. One is obviously in Ontario, Canada in particular, we have to be careful about soliciting from the general public. Mm-hmm. I've given a few talks on the subject matter. So I really encourage anyone that's interested, you can find some stuff on YouTube where I break it down for you. But it's really important that we're only supposed to really solicit from friends and family. So mm-hmm. that being said, accredited investors are a different breed. 
So social media is great for attracting accredited investors. These are people with real amounts of money that are really interested in doing something maybe on a larger scale. And I think that's one, one thing that a lot of people that get into social media and real estate struggle with at first is there's a lot of opportunities for really small partnerships where someone's like, Hey, I've scraped together 10 or $20,000. Can we do a deal? And I, I empathize with that position a lot because I remember being in that position and I love the fact that you just scraped together 10 or $20,000 and you're willing to do a 5% down, you know, duplex purchase and get CMHC insured. And that's amazing. But for me and the level I'm at these days, it doesn't make sense to want to cobble that money together. So for me, I still see the long-term value of social media as being a little bit down the road in regards to financing projects. So I would love to, in the near future, either start up like a mortgage investment corporation, a MIC, or some sort of other lending corp where it is able to more directly go to the general public and raise funds. Right now, based upon all the preliminary research I've been able to do, it seems like realistically you need to raise at least $10, $15 million in capital for the costs associated with the legal fees, the accounting and auditing fees and that to all justify it. So I haven't really got to that size yet where I trust I could just snap my fingers and raise 10 to 15 million. But I do think that that's probably going to be an option a year or two from now. And that's really exciting. And that's the sort of stuff that keeps me fired up and keeps me just constantly leading and providing value. Because like you were talking about, Sarah, a lot of us undervalue this one to many conversation, right? If I can release a YouTube video and in the first day, a thousand people watch it, think about like, you'd have to go and talk to like four, four groups at Bright Club and Right Club's one of the largest real estate meetup groups in Canada, right? Like you'd have to attend four monthly events to really talk to that number of people. And yet we're talking about like one of the largest gatherings of real estate investors on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's where the real value and reach is, is just continuously increasing your attention and knowing, knowing when and how to fit that into the long-term puzzle or journey for yourself. So I understand that there's a lot of other real estate influencers out there that directly attract JV partners and they're able to do a lot of small partnerships right now. I think that's amazing if it fits within their, their plans, right? For yeah, me, and then also just be careful and you don't want all your, the JVs because if the JVs are way off on the goals and, yes. and expectations and stuff like there's probably, you know, I just be careful. You're stuck with them for five, seven plus years, potentially if it's not the right fit. <laughs> yeah. And that's really wise. And I want to reemphasize that for anyone that's like, oh, easy for Sarah to say, she's probably got tons of money partners just throwing money at her so she can be choosy. But we have to understand that an investment relationship is just that. It's a relationship. And like any, like any relationship, it needs to be nurtured and nourished. And if you don't, it will wither and die. And so just like a romantic relationship, a business relationship, a friendship, any of those ships really do take a lot of attention from you. And I've seen a lot of other investors set themselves up for failure by taking on too many small partners at once. And it just drains all their attention. They're still financially successful, but I think that they've actually handicapped themselves from like going to the next level because they're so busy at this level with just dealing with those partners. So I really encourage everyone to, the way I like to view it is I don't want a one-off relationship. I want a serial JV relationship. So if you're going to come in and do a deal with me, I want a clear path where I can see that we're going to do like 10 deals or $10 million worth of deals together rather than see how we can like, force one $300,000 duplex together. 
because I don't think that that serves myself well, nor does it really serve my JV partner well, because what I've noticed when I'm dealing with a JV partner that's put their all into one project, and to me, it's like a rounding error on my net worth statement, is it's all they can think about. They're literally staring at that property and being like, I wonder, has Matt already changed all the light bulbs over to the most energy efficient version? And then they'll ask me, I'll be like, I have no idea and I don't care. <laughs> and like, it's obvious that our goals are very different, right? Yeah. They're focused on maximizing and trying to increase the cash flow $5 per month on this one property where I'm thinking about how can I go get the next five properties? Yeah. I mean, you're looking at the portfolio versus the, the one-offs. And I, I think that's important. And I will say JVs are not for, for everybody. So for me, because I still had an income, I was qualifying for mm -hmm. mortgages. And because I was doing the burr, I was able to reuse my money to buy the next one. So hence how I got to 10, essentially. And I'm not saying that it was easy, but I can hold on to those for 20 years, 30 years. If I want to refinance, I can refinance. If I want to sell, I can sell. Like, you know, and so there's something to be said about having full control over certain things. Now, as the job world is less important for me in the sense that at this point I'm working because I do enjoy it, not because I have to work. Once I, I'm gone, I'm likely not qualifying with lenders that I want to deal with so much. <laughs> There's some yeah. that need your arm, your leg, and your firstborn pretty so, much. <laughs> Sarah, can I ask a question? Has uh, COVID-19 and everything we're going through right now, I haven't actually paid attention. Are you still working work as normal? I am working from home, but they have us down to four days a week. But the, the great thing is I, I was originally discussing going down to part-time if they needed me or no time. So it'll be, I think, a lot easier for me to negotiate the part-time. Yeah. <laughs> Once I, okay, because that was going to be my question was, is this speeding things up for you? Because something interesting I've noticed about COVID-19 is there's actually a, a small subset of real estate investors I know that this has actually sped up their quit date. Where like, they were like, Ooh, I like what I'm tasting here. Like, this is a lot of fun not commuting every day. Ooh, you know what? I'd rather take a bit of a pay hit and risk, you know, maybe falling a few times rather than play it safe for the next three to five years, which was maybe my original plan. Yeah, I could definitely see how that, that would play into it. I mean, because I have the ability to really put my schedule together with work and I have like an amazing culture and environment and, you know, my, my boss is probably the greatest. I got, I, I don't think it, it made a difference in that sense. What I think I was concerned about originally was when um, COVID first started happening and then, okay, are, are the tenants going to be able to pay? I didn't worry so much about, are they going to strike or are they just going to choose not to pay? And I wanted to play that piece out. So in April, mm -hmm. everybody actually paid. One person was about $150 short. They, they lost their job. They've, they've been with us since 2015, great tenants. And then for May, everybody paid and it's ironic. Everybody paid within 10 days early to about four days early. And I had one person pay on the first, <laughs> but by the first everyone had paid. So it was quite interesting. That's amazing. Yeah. What about, what about you with, uh, with your tenants? Yeah, we saw an, like an average collection. So I would say, I think usually within the first 48 or 72 hours of the first we've collected, uh, 93 to 97% of rents. And I think we did 95% for April 1st. And May 1st, I didn't actually look at the statistics, but I know it was something similar because it, did, it doesn't even stand out for me. So yeah, we've been, you know, very pleasantly surprised. I think it's unfortunate 
that for a while it felt like a lot of politicians and mainstream media were positioning things to be landlords versus tenants rather than working together. But that being said, I think we've seen Canadians and just humans in general, true nature, which is we actually all just want to get along. Like we don't actually want to be confrontational. We don't want to be at each other's throats. If we can make things work, we just want to make things work. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was talking to Tony Miller on my podcast the other day and he did a, a survey and the ones that chose not to pay because of rent strikes was like three or 4%, which is in general, when you look at like good tenants versus bad tenants or good landlords versus bad landlords, that's probably the percentage in general of the ones that, you know, don't pay anyways. But the, the stat that was actually quite concerning is, so there was uh, about 20% of people that if they did not pay in full, the reasons why, um, it was because they lost their jobs and they couldn't. But the other reason, which make up, make up of about 20% as well, is because of what the government said about having not, not to have to worry about rent and mm-hmm. put food on your table first, and then thinking that mortgages were deferred so they didn't have to pay since, since landlords got their mortgage deferred. So 20% of that, um, was from the, you know, hearing and interpreting stuff wrongly in the media. And I still think that there is, um, you know, a little bit of division from the media, landlord versus tenants. And it's, it is quite unfortunate, you know, hopefully you have tenants and you, or you have a landlord, depending on who you are that listen to this, that want to work uh, with you and, and is cooperating. But uh, it's, it is tough because then you see all this stuff in the media and you're like, even commercial landlords, now you're hearing stuff in the media about like, well, why are commercial landlords not stepping up. Well, they still have to pay. They have to essentially reduce the rent 25% for the 50% to be covered. And then the tenant pays the 25%. Mm. That's like, so there, so yeah, there's a program, but is it really in their best interest? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest problems is that it's really easy for politicians and their programs to write headlines. But then once you get into the details behind those headlines, sometimes the programs can have good intentions, but unintended consequences, right? Mm-hmm. And we're going to see a ton of unintended consequences roll out from all the different sorts of regulation and just government intervention we've seen. Um, I do think, you know, the commercial real estate realm of retail, retail and office space is going to be interesting. I, I personally do think that we'll see long lasting consequences in those price or in those, uh, uh, categories of real estate, just because to me, you know, we're 50 plus days into quarantine now and you listen to the average guru and they're going to tell you three to eight weeks to form a new habit. So we're getting right there where a lot of us are forming new habits around zoom telecommunications through not commuting to work physically, all those different practices. And it's hard for me to believe that we're not going to see behavior and consumption patterns change for a lot of the population whenever the economy is fully opened up. Yeah, 100% agree. I was watching, uh, or actually reading an article where Google said for their employees, like, unless they have to be at the office, everyone's going to be working from home until the end of this year. And it wouldn't surprise me for other companies to say, you know what, my employees are not that much less productive. In fact, they're probably a little bit more productive and they're a little bit happier. Now, the the one thing that is going to be missing is that culture, right? The environment and the culture at work. I don't think that could be replaced 
regardless online. I mean, you could try. I, yeah, I'm curious. So what what about your culture stands out for the company you work for? Because that's something that we're really struggling with with my company. I was looking, I don't have it in arm's length, but like we used to reward uh, these giant wrestling belts, right? Every week to like the people dominating in their sphere. And we're really struggling to keep our culture as tight as it was. One of the things we started doing was uh, 7 a.m. workout calls. So they're optional for all employees, but each day, each weekday, uh, a different manager leads a different type of workout. So one day will be like high intensity uh, cardio. Another day might be like yoga. Another day will be body weight or like, yeah, body weight and a lot of uh, more strength oriented training. But what sort of things like, did your company do that was special about culture and like have they tried to bridge that gap so i'll tell you what we're doing right now i think we're doing something similar to you and and when i'm talking about my company i'll talk about my job company which which i work for it's actually a b2b coffee company and so it's gonna be interesting to see because not, i don't think a whole lot of offices are going to open up the same way again um but we are similar to you doing trainings on Skype and we are also doing trainings where different team members will lead it, but it's, it's not the same as being in person, right? It's not the same as being able to, to do a, like a, you know, every Monday our team used to meet cause we're, we're in sales. So we're, so I work from home technically I'm traveling, but my team is usually on the road. And so we, we meet in the office, we do a training, we do lunch together on Mondays. And then often, you know, we'll, we'll do something where, you know, I'm traveling with the majority of them during the week. So we're going to meetings together. We're doing lunch. We're, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, there's not anything in particular that it's like, oh, we do these prizes. Like, yeah, there's, you know, cool things during the year and there's trips and that kind of stuff. But I think it's just more being able to be there in person and help each other in person. And some people get energy. Like my energy comes from being around other people, being able to network as an example. I absolutely love that. But some other people's energy, you know, they're, they're maybe more introverted where they get their energy from being alone a little bit. And so, um, it's just, yeah. For, so for me, the first couple of weeks were tough because all of a sudden everything I've had scheduled is completely out the window and not that I needed to be out every single night, but I was, I enjoyed meeting investors. I enjoyed, you know, having dinner with friends. I, there's that, that piece that's missing, whether it's work, whether it's your social life in general, I think it's just nice to have physical people around you. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned, um, you know, things that, that may or may not happen with, uh, with businesses and retail, et cetera. What do you think? Like if we're, do you think we're going to see a dip? Should people be worried? Are you worried? Again, no crystal ball. I don't have one. Matt doesn't have one. Actually, maybe you secretly do, but <laughs> just kidding. But you know, what are your thoughts on a, what may or may not happen and then what, what you're doing uh, to prep? Yeah, it's definitely a hot question these days, right? What does the future hold? When will the economy work, like open up fully for work? And how will we all adjust to this? Will the government stimulus stick? There's a lot of different variables out there. So it certainly is impossible for anyone to accurately predict um, with any certainty what's going to happen. That being said, I, I do suspect that there's big fundamental shifts and changes that we're going to see that... These were inevitable to begin with, but what's happened is the crisis or the different crises that we currently find ourselves under have compressed time and sped up the innovation or the, the eventuality of all this. So specifically, I think we were already seeing a move towards you know work from home, more flex workspaces, things of that nature. So 
the office space, right? The office rental space was already a question mark, in my opinion, before COVID-19. But what's happened is just a lot of the innovation that was inevitable has really been sped up. And so I think that there will be consequences from that. But again, exactly how those consequences play out, I'm not sure. I, I suspect that we'll see a lot of companies choose to work to move towards more flex oriented workspaces, maybe more shared office spaces, more, you know, we work type office spaces, things of that nature. And then retail space, again, I think we were already seeing them really struggle between the major super plazas of Walmart and then the convenience of Amazon home delivery. And I think, again, that innovation's just really been sped up where a lot of Let's just be honest. Usually when we're looking at innovation, what we wait for is the previous generation to die off. And instead, and usually the previous generation can just be stubborn and wait for themselves to die off rather than embrace uh, technological innovation. What happened was because of quarantine, a lot of baby boomers that could just ignore Uber Eats and skip the dishes and Amazon Prime, all of a sudden, like we're essentially forced to learn this or stand in crazy long lines to get bare necessities. And for a lot of them, I think that they did embrace and they set up a Prime account or a Netflix account or a Skip the Dishes account for the first time and their kids walked them through or they figured it out themselves. So I think, again, because we're looking at an eight plus week of being under this quarantine, that different consumption patterns will develop. Again, how fast and exactly the implications of that, I'm not sure, but I imagine we'll see more things like ghost kitchens, right? Like restaurants that don't have a front-facing storefront whatsoever. They are just a trailer or just a back kitchen, something of that nature. Then moving on, I think that, you know, luxury homes is definitely a vulnerable place right now, especially speculative, like spec build luxury homes. Here in London, Ontario, anything above a million dollars was certainly getting into luxury home space. I'm, I'd be scared if I was in that price category because I think that we're gonna see a lot of people pull back on some basic consumption and spending just for the short term, just to, I wanna see how this all shakes out before I commit to a million dollar plus home right. in London, Ontario. And then beyond that, I think, the next big question we just have is, you know, how fast will the economy get back to normal and whether the stimulus that's been injected have the, will it result in the intended result the government wanted, right? Will we see just, can the government essentially cancel a recession? I don't know, but I'd love to find out. So I'm staying tuned and like everyone, we're going to figure this out together. Absolutely. I'm going to make my own opinion call yeah. on that as well. And I think because we're printing a lot of money right now, I think at some point there's going to be inflation. But before that, I think there's going to be a bit of a, like, here's the thing. If there's another round of this, um, it's not going to be good. Um, if we have to go back in, it's not going to be good. But I still think that there's going to be some, maybe some changes between the, the time that people stop getting their SERB payment and their mortgages could re resume to be due again. And, you know, that four to six month period, I think it's going to be quite interesting because I look at employment or unemployment and how many of those people are returning to jobs at the same pay and the same hours. And so like you think of like the restaurant industry, you think of the hotel travel industry, do you, are they going to need their full workforce? Probably not. And so the people that are now on serve that with, you know, are not no longer working, are they actually coming back to jobs? And if they're not coming back to jobs and all of a sudden serve stops and their mortgages are coming due, I think there might be a little bit of panic sell. I think there's going to be potentially a dip. I don't see it going down insanely like 50%, but I wouldn't be shocked if we saw a 10% dip. 
And I think it's the price points too. The other thing I was thinking like, you know, if you're stuck in a condo or an apartment right now, you're probably going to want to have like a backyard. If you're going to start working from home, I think your residential space will become even more important, potentially yeah. a space, something that you can get away from the kids or your spouse for a little bit so that you can get work done. So I think the, the home piece is going to be uh, very important. Do I think rents are going to go down? No, I don't think so. Not in Ontario, maybe a little bit in Toronto, but if anything, it'll be very minimal. But I think the rents are going to stay strong, A, because we are bound to a 2.2% increase as an example. I don't think that's high enough anyways. Uh, but also the vacancy, there's barely any vacancies and tenants are diamond, let's face it. So, but I, th but I think that there's going to be more demand for something with a little bit more space, not astronomically crazy high, but you know, some yard space where if people have to go through this again, they don't have to take the elevator or be stuck high in the sky somewhere. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I've been really thinking of it as a return to your home is your castle. So I think we're going to see people reduce their experiences, right? They're going to reduce international travel and instead they're going to build that home theater. They're going to reduce international travel and instead build that cabana or that outdoor fireplace or barbecue or whatever. And then talking about or hitting upon your discussion there of price points and rents, to me, we've always, and like, I think you've followed a very similar business model in Brantford. Here in London, we've always invested on fundamentals, right? Yeah. And what's really interesting is with the rollout of CERB, which in essence is a $2,000 a month payment to almost any Canadian with a pulse, that's the government kind of establishing where they believe, you know, the bare, bare necessities are, right? And that's going to really dictate where price floors are established as well. So we can look at Stats Canada and see that the average Canadian spends 30, 40% of their, their income on shelter, and that includes utilities. So what we can extrapolate from that is that the average person on CERB should be spending six to $800 a month on shelter. And what's really interesting in places like Brantford or London, a two bedroom apartment is still gonna be in that 12 to $1,600 a month price point. That means that two people on CERB or two people making minimum wage working full time can essentially still afford that two bedroom apartment in these markets. Mm -hmm. The same thing can't be said about like Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal, right? And mm -hmm. this to me is what's really inter interesting about affordability. And a lot of, a lot of just people in general, they, they naturally, wherever they were born or raised is where they think they have to live. But we might start to see people become more willing to move to a different community based upon affordability if we do see unemployment start trending up. Yeah. And especially as people can work from home more, commuting is going to be less and less important. So location may be less and less important. And if I was somebody that could work from home and I didn't make, you know, maybe I made 50 grand or maybe I made 60 grand, I probably would move somewhere else where it's a smaller town. It's cheaper. And fortunately, I think in a, in a time like this, where there's so much uncertainty, we're going to see who was speculating and who was truly investing. And I think if there's anybody that was really banking on Airbnb or, you know, like the appreciation in a Toronto market where they're buying a condo for seven, 800,000 and paying 500 a month for a tenant to live there because that's, they have to top it up. I think, unfortunately, those people may not fare as well as somebody like me who's buying not in the ghetto, but in the bottom third of the markets where mm -hmm. regardless of what happens, I have some cash flow. And if appreciation doesn't happen for a couple of years, I have my mortgage pay down and I have, you know, low vacancy rate. And there's, there's fundamentals that I like about that market. So 
I mean, for me, I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's see where I can buy, right? Because there could be even more opportunities once, once the, the CERB payments are done and mortgages come due, could there be another cottage? Are people going to get rid of their like more luxury things? I, I wouldn't mind a pontoon boat this year. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if it wasn't for real estate, I would not be in the situation. So I, th- I think it's super important for, you know, if you're listening to this and you're getting started, buy on the fundamentals don't buy anything crazy just because you want to live in there. Don't over renovate. Like there's, there's so many great ways that you can do well with real estate investing. And I'm in a position right now. I mean, like whatever happens in the market, I mean, even if it goes down 50%, like I'll just hang on and ride the wave. Yeah. And that's the beauty of cash flow investing, right? Like people love to throw out these doom and gloom, like real estate's going to fall 30, 50%. I'm like, cool. What happens with rents? Yeah, because <laughs> like unless rents drop and the only way we're going to see rents drop, like you were saying, Sarah, before COVID-19, we were dealing with like a 2% vacancy rate and we we're dealing with an affordability crisis. It's very unlikely, in my opinion, that we would see any substantial reduction in rents, especially in the price points that you and I invest in, again, because of that affordability matrix, right? Just understanding that, hey, the government's for forecasting their hand. They're foreshadowing that they believe that $2,000 a month is the basic kind of universal income amount. If we see a UBI get rolled out, that's probably going to be the price point we see it at. That's going to really establish a, a floor for accommodations and housing. We can take 30, 40% of that and really just telegraph out what we expect to happen. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, just want to take a quick moment and introduce you to a key member of my power team. Dylan Suter is my realtor who's been working very hard to find me amazing deals. And Dylan, I'm a big proponent in working with realtors that are investors. And Dylan is truly an investor. Welcome, Dylan. And thank you so much for being a sponsor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I want to first thank you for having us as a sponsor. We're really grateful to be working with you and all of the support you've given us over the past couple of years. So thank you so much for that. And our focus as Elevation Realty is to focus our attention primarily on real estate investors that are looking to replace their active income with a passive income and go enjoy what they like most, such as time with the family or up at the cottage, whatever it may be. So what we do is we focus our attention on creating a plan specific for each client, whether that is something they want to have five properties in five years and be able to sit on them for 10 years and then sell them and retire on the the equity. Or if they're looking to scale their portfolio and retire in the next 12 months, we can look at doing that as well through joint ventures or Airbnb short-term rentals. We can talk through buildings, buy, renovate, refinance, single family purchases, and the list goes on. That's awesome. Now, Dylan, if people wanted to reach out and get help from you, where can they go? They can check us out online at www.elevationrealty.ca, E-L-E-V-A-T-I-O-N, realty.ca, or they can email us at info at elevationrealty.ca, Give us a call or text at 905-592-4220 or check us out at The Right Club or other meetup groups that we're usually at as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dylan. It is awesome working with you as always. And now back to the show. And now back to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So, I mean, we could keep talking forever and sharing these opinions. We'll probably have to have you back at some point. But uh, the next part of the podcast is uh, our lightning round. So, You can make it based on what you're doing right now in social isolation if you want, or you can make it in general because you probably answered these questions already from the first time that you podcast. But question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book 
or have you read a good book lately while you're isolating? Yeah. So rich dad, poor dad, if you guys are brand new to real estate, you got to read that. But after that, if during social isolation for any of the entrepreneurs or business owners out there, Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things, absolutely amazing. If you're not familiar with Ben's uh, story, he uh, started A16Z, which is a uh, BC firm out of California. Amazing guy. And uh, you absolutely have to check out that book. Very cool. Number two, what, what is your favorite podcast or have you found a new one recently in isolation? So I'm just going like, I don't know, I'm kind of basic, but Elon Musk was just on the Joe Rogan podcast, guys. Mm-hmm. If, if you just want to ever remind yourself of how simple you are, how basic of a bitch <laughs> your brain is, just listen to that. Because like every time I'm just like, oh man, here I was thinking I was about to start playing checkers, but Elon reminds me I'm still playing or sorry, I'm playing checkers, not chess, because he is on a different level. So yeah. I love when Joe Rogan has great guests. I think sometimes that's some of the best entertainment in the world. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. We were actually talking about that at breakfast this morning. <laughs> but yeah, I know he's at just a whole different level of brain. Um, question number three, what do you do for fun aside from real estate? Or what are you doing right now to keep you sane? Yeah, one of... So like most of my shit's business shit these days, but like there's different business projects. So I hop, hop from project to project outside of that. I guess the one thing I really love doing is just reading historical or listening to historical audiobooks. So right now I'm listening to the black Jacobins, which is about uh, the revolution in Haiti and uh, just a segment of history that I was completely ignorant towards. And so it's been fascinating to, it's a long book. It's like 36 hours, I think, but it's been fascinating to just be exposed to the entire history and culture behind why Haiti is where it is today. That's interesting. Next question. Number four, if uh, you lost all of your money, your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? So probably the biggest caveat is whether I get to keep my reputation or not, because if I get to keep my reputation, boom, it's back in an instant, which is really cool. And that to me is one of the most powerful things about social media and branding. If I literally had to start over, over, I would probably start focusing on wholesaling real estate. The closer you can get to a deal, the closer you get to the piece of real estate, the more exit strategies you have available to you. So for me, the closer I can get to the deal and negotiating with the seller, the more options and opportunities I'm going to have. So wholesaling would be my, my go-to. All right. Awesome. And last question, number five, if somebody has $50,000 and they want to know how they can get started, how would you recommend they do that? There's a lot of different ways to go about doing this and there's no one perfect solution, but in my opinion, house hacking. So figure out a way to live for free. Again, the average Canadian spending 30, 40% of their income on shelter. If you can find a way to live for free and have your tenants to pay for your housing, all of a sudden you can now save 30, 40% of your income. I don't like, I'm a big believer in the latte factor and all that stuff, but let's just look at, you won't be able to save your way or scrimp and cut 30 or 40% off of your personal budget unless you house hack. So house hacking, that's the big domino. Very cool. Thanks for playing. So where can the listeners reach out and find out more about you? Anywhere social media is, I'll be there. But in particular, if you guys want to hit us up on YouTube, I would love that. So it's Matt McKeever on YouTube, but we legit are everywhere. We're doing some stuff on TikTok now. So it'd be cool to get TikTok followers as well. All right. And final question, anything that you would like the listeners to leave with piece of advice or anything else that you'd like to share? Yeah. 
two themes that I've had this year that we didn't really touch upon was make more offers, get more deals. So right now, if you're struggling as a real estate investor, I want you to look in the mirror and be honest with yourself. How many written offers have you made this month on real estate? And if the answer is zero or close to zero, just understand you're not putting in enough work or you're not putting in the right work. Secondly, the other thing I want to really hit home on is return on time. Way too often I hear about investors bragging about their cash on cash, their IRR, their ROI, ROT. That to me is the most impressive metric. What is your return on time? My return on time by doing this interview with Sarah is massive because it allows me to have a one-to-many conversation. But at the same time, I might not financially find that to be accretive tomorrow. It might take a while. But in the long term, if I'm playing this, if I'm playing the game of life and not the game of tomorrow, I really need to focus on my return on time. Return on time. I love it. Thank you, Matt, for being on the show. Thanks for your insights. And uh, thank you for all the awesome content that you put out there. And, uh, and guys, if you haven't subscribed to his channel, please do so. Matt McKeever, thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. Really appreciate it. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.